That's one of my favorite movies, Back to the Future. It's such an awesome movie. How many of you guys seen that movie out there? How many of you guys haven't seen that movie? You're raising your hands. You're making me feel really old right now. I'm kind of dating myself. I got to admit something. When I was in, uh, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade when that movie came out, I wanted to be Marty McFly. I did. I went to, I think, JCPenney's for uh, my uh, going back to school uh, shopping, and I got the, the jean jacket, the orange vest, the shirt, the little suspenders. Yeah, that was me. It's all right. I'm just submitting it to you. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name's Danny. I'm the Tierra Santa Campus Director. I'm glad you guys are here with us. I want to say a big hello to everybody watching us online on Facebook and everybody out on the patio watching us as well. And man, I'm just glad that you guys are here this morning. So that movie, if you haven't seen that movie, is all about those two guys. Doc Brown is the crazy scientist that came up with this thing called the flux time capacitor, which ends up being everybody's joke for a car repair, right? Oh, my flux time capacitor went out. The mechanic wants to change it. But anyways, they come up, he comes up with that, puts it in a DeLorean, fuels it full of plutonium, and the adventures begin. And the whole kind of gist behind the story is to go back because Doc gets murdered, and they're trying to fix something. And when I think about that movie, I think, man, wouldn't it be nice sometimes in our life if we had a spare DeLorean, uh, what is it called? A DeLorean. Man, this comment was supposed to be powerful. I messed the whole thing up right there, my <laughs> word. Don't you wish you had a spare DeLorean and some plutonium and you could go back and fix some of the mistakes that we've made in life? Man. There was this article that came out a few years ago. And it was in a magazine that um, this magazine was getting ready to go to print and uh, there was kind of the, the, uh, the editor was kind of in like a bind. He was sending it to the uh, publisher, but there were still a couple empty spots. So one of his friends said, hey, I want to take out this ad. And so a buddy of his takes out this ad, and it was kind of funny, and I want to read it to you, and it says this. And this is real. This went to print. It says, uh, somebody to go back in time with me. It's a want ad. This is not a joke. You'll get paid after we get back. Okay, I see that. Must bring your own weapons. I could see that a little bit. Safety not guaranteed. I've only done this once before. Obviously, most people got the joke, and they got some funny responses from people that are like, you know, just kind of going along with it. But what they were so surprised about is they got an overwhelming amount of responses for people that actually wanted to go back. And there was this constant theme running through every single one of those letters coming in from this post. It was, I want to go back because I wish I could fix this mistake. Or I wish I could go back because I wish I could spend more time with my dad or my mom or uh, 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 even a child that they lost. And it was this constant theme all about this idea of regret. And regret is one of those words when we hear it, it makes us kind of shiver in our chair a little bit because I think all of us when we hear that word realize, man, I, I've got some regrets in life. There are some mistakes that I wish I could go back and fix. There are some people I would love to go back and spend some more time with. The fact is, is everyone experiences regret. But I get to choose whether to live in them or not. Whether to let them control my life, my regrets are what control me, or no, I, I realize that I've made some mistakes, but those don't define me. 
And regret is one of those things that as we look at it, it brings back memories of times and situations that sometimes are not necessarily the most comfortable situations in our life. And today, as we close out this series, The Tale of Three Kings, uh, we're going to be looking at a very regretful memory for King David. We've been in this series now for three weeks, and this today is all about David and Absalom. And if you were here last week, we're going to pick up on the heels directly after what happened last week, and that's Absalom being killed. Now, I don't even know if you remember the way Absalom died, and as as I was reading it um, over the past few months, and then last week, and then this week, I was thinking, man, Absalom died a pretty horrible death. Like, think about it. Absalom was riding on his donkey, and he was on his way, and he gets trapped. It says um, that he gets trapped in this oak tree. It's either he was hanging by his hair, or some translations are like he was hanging by his neck. But whatever it is, he's hanging there. And this guy, Joab, who we're going to hear about here in a little bit, Joab takes uh, three javelins and pierces his heart. But he's not convinced, not good enough. So he sends four of his guys down there to feed him until he dies. That's rough. Like, that's a horrible way to go out. And now, we're going to see how David responds to this. We're going to see David in probably one of the most grief-filled, kind of regretful moments in his entire life. And it's a powerful, powerful story that looks at not only regret, but grief, and how it can control us. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we'll start picking up in verse 31. And this, right off the bat, really will show us David's response. And it says this, starting in verse 31. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. And then, the da- and then David asked this question right here. He asked the Cushite, Is a young man, Absalom, safe? A father asking about the state of his child. Child that's on the run. There's separation in the relationship. Doesn't necessarily know the well-being of his son. Ask that faithful question. Is my boy okay? Here comes the news. The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The news parent never wants to hear. That your child is dead. That his son, that there is, is in rebellion, that there's this giant separation in the relationship. His son has died. And it says here in verse 33 that the king was shaken. I can imagine from the moment he asked a question about, is Absalom okay, to getting the news, it kept getting worse and worse. And and, and David, wanting not that to be the reality, please don't let him be dead, now realizes that he is and he's completely shaken. I would imagine shaken to the point where he almost falls out. We've all got news like that, where it's hit us, dropped us to our knees. Maybe it's some regret that's fueling some of it, or or grief, or whatever it is, but there's a moment we've gotten that news where it's just been like too overwhelming. It says that Keen was shaken, and he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, 
Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The words of a grief-filled father. He's using this language that I think as we're working through our regrets and our grief in different moments in our life, he's using language that we have to pay attention to. When we're kind of stuck in a regret, we have to look at the language that we're using. Look at David again here. He uses this if only in verse 33. If only... I had died instead of you, O Absalom. Regret comes with words like this. Would have, could have, should have. What if, if, if only, they underscore the dead language of regret. Missed opportunities, broken relationships. The whole if only, if only, or, or what if. And it's so crazy that two little letters form one word that's so small but yet so powerful. And those are traps. What if and if only? If only if only I had more time. Or if only I wasn't stuck in this place. Or if only, if only I could understand my teenager. If only I could understand their language. If only I could understand what they're going on. Because I don't get their world. And I don't think they understand my world either. Parents, I want to say this. This might be one of the most important conferences for you to go to. If you have a teenager, don't miss this. Don't miss this because they're living in a world that is so completely opposite to the world that most of us grew up in. They're dealing with things and having to process things where mass shootings have become commonplace. Where bullying online is something they have to deal with on a regular basis. And as parents, we need to learn how to step into that gap and be there for them. But if only can be a trap. If only, if only I would have been there. And then there's the other side, there's the what if. See, the if only, I think, is almost the optimistic person, where the what if person is the worst case scenario. Well, what if that really happens? What if my spouse leaves me? What if I get a divorce? What if those test results come back positive. My wife and I are kind of dealing with that a little bit right now. Pastor Mike said a couple weeks ago that my wife's father is really ill, and um, yesterday, or Friday, we got some news that was really tough. Um, he was diagnosed with a, like, massive infection with hepatitis B, and it's progressing very fast, and hepatitis B progresses. There's no, from what we understand, there's no cure or treatment, um, and it advances into the liver, and it either goes cirrhosis or liver cancer. And so we're kind of dealing in the wake of not only just what if, and then my wife is dealing with the regrets of if only. See, regret has a way to, to raise up in our life. It kind of is like it begins to boil to the uh, little pop up to the surface, especially when we think about those mistakes that we, we've made or those situations or those relationships that are broken or opportunities that we miss. And regret has its way of popping up and kind of telling us all kinds of lies about those things, how we're not this or you should have been that. And we begin to, to believe those lies and make agreement with those lies. See, 
Regret brings up all kinds of things in our life. And what we see in this story, and I think we can all agree with, is that regret may arise because we care deeply about something or someone. We see David in verse, at the end of verse 33. He says, my son, three times in this desperate type of, of language, this, this desperate type of situation. And regret rises to the surface because David cared about Absalom. Deeply cared about Absalom. Even though there was rebellion. Even though Absalom at this time had tried to do everything. He was going to overthrow the king. And it started in a sense of him trying to be this like submissive son. Oh, I would never against my father. But I would, I would do this different. And he would entertain those conversations. Entertain those conversations. And finally, even the most humble, even the most submissive son after a while will start believing those things and start acting on those things. See, David is, is, is mourning here because, number one, he realizes, yet he's losing another son. Absalom is dead. But what he also is realizing is that he lost his son a long time ago because of the lack of loyalty and love that no longer exists between him and Absalom. Absalom, no longer, there's no love and loyalty from Absalom, and he realizes he lost that. But now he's in the wake of realizing that his son is dead, and there's no possible chance for reconciliation in their relationship. It's over. It's finite. It's done. And he regrets it. Deeply, deeply regrets it. And when we think about regrets and we think about those situations that arise, it's almost... Like we begin to think, man, I wish, I wish I wouldn't have made those mistakes because regret might also arise as a consequence of our past actions. Now understand this in the story. David, um, part of David's story is a great sin. And some of us know that, but if you're new to church, you haven't, you're not necessarily familiar with the story of David. David commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, he wants to keep that secret. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. In fact, he calls her husband home from battle and has him murdered. But the secret gets bigger. The secret gets bigger, and he's confronted by a man named Nathan. And David pins his famous, like, cry-out response of desperation. Why he's, uh, one of the reasons he's known for being a man after God's own heart is he, he pins Psalm 51, and it's his cry of desperation. It's almost the cry of what regret and, and grief and all these things that he's experiencing because of what happened. But the thing that happened between David and Bathsheba is they bore a son, and that son's name was Absalom. And now that son is dead. And there's this verse back in chapter 12, and this whole passage is talking about this, this David's sin of, of adultery, and now he's a murderer as well. And this this kind of like promise was spoken over him. God spoke, speaks this. It's, it's this, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. And now that calamity, that word, that secret that's been in his head for far too long is now living out. It's a reality in his life. His son is dead. And that calamity finally happens. Let me say this, and, and listen to what, what I'm not saying. Your actions will not necessarily lead to the death of your child. That's what we can't take away from this. But they can bring death. 
death to relationships, what we see between David and his son. Death to opportunities. Death to all kinds of situations. And, and, and sadly, there are realities where your mistakes cost somebody their life, literally. But what I see here in this passage, and the one thing I think we've got to take away from this and really, really remember is that those secrets that we keep, those regrets that we keep, because of something we may have done, what it shows me is that those things that we do do have consequences. And sometimes that regret may be a little true and needed to remind us of what happened, but we hold tight to those things. We hold tight to those secrets. We hold tight to those regrets, and they control us, and they kind of dictate our life and kind of dictate what we do and how we do relationships and how we do life. We're constantly viewing it, believing the lies that are being spoken. And I want to ask you, what secrets do you hold and regret? The secret that maybe popped up when we started talking about regret this morning. The thing that made you maybe shake in your chair a little bit this morning. We all have them. I've never met a person that doesn't have regret. It's sad, but it's the true reality of who we are. A couple weeks ago, I was, uh, we were up taking care of my father-in-law, and uh, he lives up in Riverside, and Riverside's pretty close to where I grew up. I grew up in Chino, and if you don't know where Chino is at, I've been there for you. You don't need to go. Um, <laughs> there's two things about Chino you need to know. Adam's from Chino. Maybe we share that bond right there. Um, there's two things you need to know about Chino. It's a dairy town, and there's a maximum security prison. That's it. That's, that's it right there. But anyways, I told my boys, so I had all three of my boys with me because my wife had to take um, her dad to get some tests and blood work and different things like that. So I said, hey, boys, um, I don't think you guys really remember where dad grew up. I'm going to take you back there. So we loaded up in the truck, and we head out on the, uh, the great adventure to um, Chino. Uh, <laughs> boys in tow, we head out there, and we go into kind of like the the outskirts of town, way out uh, east, and it's all dairy still, and we're driving through there. And as we start driving through the dairies, I start having all kinds of different memories pop up. You know, I think of times as a kid, and with my mom, and with my dad. But then it kind of began to twist a little bit. I started thinking and having these memories of some mistakes that I made as a teenager out in the dairies. Because the dairies were where all the good parties were at in high school. And I made plenty of mistakes out on those dairy fields. And I remember I just started to get a little quieter. And we drove past, like, one of the first houses we lived in that now is absolutely abandoned and should be tore down. And we drove past. And I said, hey, boys, that, that's the first house we live in. They're like, wow, you guys were poor. You lived in that? I said, no, it wasn't that. I mean, it's, of course it was better when I grew up there. I was like, no, it really wasn't. It was bad. <laughs> and we look at my bedroom window, and they're like, wow, that's rough. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> then we start heading back into town, and uh, we're driving up streets that I used to drive in. I remember driving in my 1979 white Toyota Corolla hatchback in as a senior in high school, doing all kinds of stupid stuff down those streets. We drive past my high school that I barely graduated. Still can't believe I got, went to college. Still can't believe I got in to a great university. I graduated like a 1.9 GPA. Talk about skinny your teeth. And these stories keep popping up and these regrets keep coming up and they keep coming up and we finally get to the house that I grew up 
uh, at, like spent all my childhood at. We drove by there, and it's not in great shape either. My kid's like, did you guys, you guys have really, it must have been hard for you, Dad. It was rough, wasn't it? And I was like, shut up, it was not. But it was crazy because all of these little things that I've kept inside that I haven't addressed in so many years, I hadn't been home in, I don't know, five or six years. I hadn't been home since before we moved to Nashville, so that's almost seven years. And it had been a while, and I, I just didn't remember all those secrets that I was holding on to and all those regrets that I had, but they began to pop up. And I began to think about so many different things that happened and so many different opportunities that I lost or so many relationships and, and situations that were no longer. And I think that's a big point for us is when it comes to not living in regret, not only do we have to pay attention to the language we're using, we have to recognize our loss. We have to recognize our loss and grieve it because it gives us the ability at that point to move on. It gives us the ability to, to move on. We begin to recognize that loss. Maybe it was an opportunity. Maybe it was a situation. Maybe it was a relationship. Or like David, maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one, a mother, a father, a grandparent, a son, or a daughter. And you're grieving those things. I'll say this when it comes to those secrets and those regrets that we keep inside of us. If you don't confess them, you can't address them. They're going to stay with you the entire time. If we don't get them out, we can't do anything with them. There's nothing we can do. They just stay in there, and that's what I came to a grips of reality with, is that this these secrets that I had held on to, these regrets that I had held on to, man, they were inside of me, and they were, like, living, and it was so crazy how that day went, because I didn't remember, like, all those different things that I was involved with, but yet they're coming up, and now I'm like, man, I've got some really crazy stuff I need to work through. Great, another three years in counseling, right? <laughs> the story continues on, and now we hear um, from Joab, and Joab for me, from here on out, shows me this guy's got a lot of gold, right? He's the one that kills David's son. Keep that in mind as we read these next few verses. So, continuing on in, in chapter 19, looking at verse 1. Joab hears of this. He was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. That's a shocker for these guys, because he was a rebellion. He was enemy. Absalom and his army and all those people were rising up against the king. These are not people that were good. Why is the king grieving for this son that he should be celebrating? Because he's dead. It's gone. No longer. We've stopped it. He can't do anything else. And these guys are confused, because this should be a day that we're celebrating. This should be a day that we're excited, but it's not. Because the king is in shambles. The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city at that day as men still in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. It's almost like now they feel like they've lost, but they haven't. But they've lost. It's that confusing type of mindset that regret and grief can do to us. It says the king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son. 
my son. What I see here is that David is beginning, he understands, he gets the news, but now he's beginning this process of grief. He's beginning this process of grief. And there's something I want us to remember. If you're going through grief, or if you've been through grief, or maybe you're stuck in a season where you even haven't addressed it yet, you've stuck with it. Grief is a process. It's not a destination. The king's crying out. He's weeping. He's mourning for Absalom. I would, I would say he's even more than weeping. He's probably in hysterics at some points. But grief is a process. It's not a destination. Sometimes we feel like, and I know I've done this, is like, okay, I've worked through it. I don't miss my dad as much, or I don't miss this person as much, and I'm okay. I've arrived, and I'm good. No, that's not it. Because grief has a way in our bodies, when it's just in there, of really finding the, the leap least past of resistance to release itself. And grief comes out of us in ways that just don't make, doesn't make any sense. Like anger or snapping or something or a smell or we see something or we hear something or something happens that triggers it. And we may not have thought about that person in six months, a year or whatever, but we're brought up to it. And grief happens. And we're struck. That day that we drove up to the beautiful city of Chino, and saw those amazing homes I lived in. The last one was a house I grew up in, I said that. And I don't like going by that house at all. That house is the house that my dad died. And I'll never forget that moment. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, and my mom is about four, nine, she's tiny. And she screamed like nothing I've ever heard in my entire life. Filled the house. Danny, Danny, your dad's not breathing. Danny, get in here now. Danny, we, and I, so I run in there. And from the moment I walked in the door, I saw him laying on the bed. I'll never forget it. And I go, oh, he's, he's gone. But my mom didn't want to accept it. She goes, get him off the bed. Get him off the bed. We have to give him CPR. We have to try. Now, my dad was 6'2", 6'3", 350 to 400 on a good day. And my mom, 4'9", and, and me with the chest like a 12-year-old are trying to lift this man up off the bed and put him on the ground to do CPR. And we got that superhuman strength at that moment, and we lifted him up, and we put him on the ground. And I remember checking his breathing and trying to open his mouth and all that, and I just... Those sounds, those smells, man, they haunt me sometimes. So we do CPR, and it's not working, obviously, and the paramedics come in, and they pretty much pull me off of my dad, and they relieve me, and it was within a few minutes that they pronounced him DOA, right? He had died of a massive heart attack. <sighs> Whew. That's tough. I remember standing in the living room and watching my dad go out on the stretcher with the white sheet over him through our living room where we'd done birthdays and Christmas and Thanksgiving. And I just was like, no, this is not true. And I watched him get wheeled out, taken to the same mortuary where my grandmother and my brother and my uncle were taken to. And I was just like, man, this is too much. This is so overwhelming. And then it happened. If only, and what if? If only I could have done something. Maybe, maybe I could have 
heard something. Maybe if the bedroom door, if I, what, what if I'd have left the bedroom door open that night? I maybe could have, uh, or, or if only I wouldn't have gone out that night with a buddy of mine, I could have been there and maybe seen something and taken him to, to, the, to the emergency room. It's all those things that we get caught up in. What we have to do is, when we get caught in those moments, and it becomes absolutely overwhelming, it becomes flooring, we have to be aware. Because when we're in those moments, there's a splash zone. People are being affected. Everybody in our life is being affected because grief is releasing in different ways that we've never really dealt with. And regret is keeping us from giving ourselves fully to anybody that's around us because these regrets have us trapped. And we have to be aware of how dwelling on our past regrets, our regrets in general, affects the people around us. Think about David, the king. He is so overwhelmed with, with grief that he's completely lost sight of everything, his kingly duties. And not only that, being thankful that God had delivered him and protected him, but yet he's so lost in grief that he can't see it. And I think of the, the season right after my, my dad died. It was like a couple month season. Man, I was a mess. Oh, I was a mess. I would go to work, and I'd break down, and I'd have to leave work, and my job was, uh, my, I was like on thin ice with my job, and I remember my relationship with my wife, it was on, she was just like, man, I don't know who you are, because I wasn't, I didn't know how to deal with grief. In fact, I shoved grief down. Didn't want to deal with it. No, no. And I remember I had one day at work where I, I thought I was going to get fired because I just couldn't do it. And then somebody told me, about a group at church that is about grief. It's this group called Grief Share. And it helps you work through the process of grief in a healthy way. It helps you begin to process those hurts and those memories and those regrets and the what ifs and the ifs onlys and, and the anniversaries and the birthdays and the, the, the holidays and all that stuff. And it helps you work through it. And I want to say this about Grief Share. If you deal with grief, if you're struggling, if you have not worked through it, if you've shoved it down, if you've ever had somebody tell you, hey, you should probably talk to somebody about your dad or your mom or whoever it may be, I challenge you, Thursday night, 7 o'clock on this campus right here, we have grief share. Jim and Don Lawford, amazing people. They're deacons, they're prayer warriors, and they are the most loving people that can walk. Because we can't do it alone. We think we can, right? No, I'm strong. I got this. No, absolutely not. If it breaks a king to the point where he doesn't care about the victory or being a king, it's going to affect you as well. Look at what happens here. And this is Joab. And I, I, I'm like so surprised what Joab does. And he, he says this in a way like, Man, you've got a lot of goal coming to, coming to David like this. And he doesn't really care. Because he's got his own self-interest in a lot of ways. What I think, I might be reading into the story a little bit. But I think he's got his own self-interest. Look at what it says here as we finish this out in verse 5. 
It says, then Joab went into the house to the, uh, to the king and said, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. That, my friends, is affecting people around you. This should be a day of mourning. I mean, a day of celebration. It should not be a day of mourning. They should be celebrating. It's over. This rebellion is done. That, that, that self-righteous, self-serving, whatever, Absalom is gone, and the king is restored. But no, grief. Grief came and stole that day. Grief came and took everything away that day. Now Joab gives him this challenge in verse 7. He says, now go out. He's telling, the, he's telling David, he's like looking, I can imagine in a stern like look and voice, he just exploded about him saying all the things he just said. But now in verse 7 he goes, now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord, David, that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. We've spent the last almost nine months with David. We know David's story as a church. If you haven't been here, maybe you've caught it or if you're new, we've covered David for nine months. We've seen every ounce of David, a, a strong David, a, a young boy with a sling and three rocks that kills the giant, a young boy that's anointed king, and a young boy that's chased by a, man, by a crazy king named Saul, all these things, this this affair, the, the murder, everything, the loss of his sons, and now Joab saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. David responds, and we see it here in verse 8. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Understand this about this idea of the gateway. See, the gateway is where the elders and the king would go and set to welcome the troops back home to celebrate them for their victory in battle. That day, they came back. There was no king. He was in his chambers crying. But now we see David kind of making things right. What we see David do, being confronted of this effects of grief and, and regret what it's doing to everybody else, Joab begins to call him back. What really we see here is we see David not only in the process of grief, but we kind of see David begin to repent. He acknowledges his loss. We know what language he was doing, but now he begins to repent. See, repentance ensures that our past regrets no longer dictate our future destiny. Turning from those things, acknowledging them, working through them, processing them, no longer letting them rule our life. When we repent, we turn from those things, it begins to free us. Now, am I saying that all regret is a sin? You're a sinner and you're a broken, horrible person if you have regret. No, I'm not saying that. Because sometimes there's regret that we need in our life. I wish I was a better parent. I wish I was a better friend. I wish I was a 
better. We have regrets of some of the things that we've done, and there are challenges that kind of move us along. I'm not saying that that regret is a sin, but what I am saying is that if you live in regret and you let it control you, it can drive you to sin. Anger, hate, resentment. Repentance, and I want you to understand this about repentance. Repentance is this. We're walking in one direction. We're walking towards our regrets. We're walking towards our mistakes. We're weighed down heavy, and we're continually walking in this way. And if we continue walking in this way, it's going to lead us down a path of destruction. But repentance is this. We've walked, we've acknowledged, and we walk the other way, never looking back. We do a complete 180. We were walking this way, and we were walking towards our regrets and our mistakes and our hate and our anger, but then we stop. And we walk the other way, completely change our path, do a complete 180 and head in another absolute complete direction. That's repentance. It's not doing a circle in it and thinking, oh, I'm changing, I'm changing. No, if we keep going around and around and around and around and around, we're like a hamster in a wheel. Doing the same thing over and over again, looking for different responses is insanity. Walking down this path, Man, you want to talk about insanity, it leads to all kinds of stuff. It's when we stop, we realize the language we're using, we're like, man, I'm caught up in these what-ifs. We begin to acknowledge, okay, I know what happened, I have to grieve this. And then we say, I'm no longer going to live in these regrets. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he loves me. That's Marcus coming out. <laughs> Give it up for Marcus. Yeah. Jada, Marcus ruined my moment. Thank you. Pay attention to me right here real quick. Here's what I want to say. Repentance. See, you and I, and, and guys, I want you to get this, seriously. When we choose to live different, because you and I have to choose not to live in our regrets. We can no longer let grief control. We have to turn and go in a different direction. See, that way leads to destruction. What does this way lead to? And it's funny, because there's a symbol right there. This way leads to the cross, where we can surrender those things. We don't have to keep them on us no more, because we have a God that is present. We had a God that is true, and we have a God that is loving, and Scripture says that he will not forsake us, but we get lost in the what-ifs and if-onlys, and what's at the core of those what-if and what's all, and what, uh, all those things is a lack of trust. We don't trust him. We don't believe who he is. We believe the lies of regret, but when it comes to God and who he is and what he can do, no, no. But repentance gives us the ability to live in a whole nother way. Friends, we need to live today in a way that gives us the ability to thrive tomorrow. We have to live in a way today, away from these things, no longer there, so that we live in this new way so that tomorrow we're no longer held up by these regrets and grief and anger and hate and resentment and all the things that come with that. No, we're now thriving. Because what does Jesus say? I want to give you life and I want to give it in abundance. That's a life of thriving. I love how Paul says it. Paul says it this way. 
He says, godly sorrow brings repentance. We trust God. We believe God. We know who he is. We're no longer letting these things hold us. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's a simple truth. Worldly sorrow brings death. Death to our relationships, death to opportunities, death to our mental, our spiritual, maybe even our physical health. Regret and grief can do absolutely crazy things to us. Regret and grief, man. So what's your next step? When you think of your life, those secrets, those regrets, maybe it's grief. You see David, how much can you identify with David this morning? You hear the story and you're like, oh, God, that's my story. Thank you, God. God, thank you. What's your next step? Is it grief share? Because if it is, don't wait. Thursday night, 7 o'clock. Parents, is it going to, to, to the parenting seminar? Do it. For some of you, is it just coming to a moment that you begin to, to vocalize those regrets or those griefs and you write them down and you surrender them. On your seat, there's these tags that you got when you walked in and the ushers are in the back with the pens. I want to challenge us as we end service this morning. There's a wall right back there and it has the words that go oh so well with our sermon. I'm trusting God take whatever's on this card and walk with us. Lead us to godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. I want you, we're going to end. I'm going to pray here in a moment. I want to read the last part of this verse. But I want you to sit. I want you to think about that and pray. And as you leave out of here, leave it on the wall. Trust him. Because he will. I've seen him do it in my life. I've seen him do it in countless others. I love the way Paul says it. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. No longer living in worldly sorrow, but now living in godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and to salvation. And we've turned from the worldly, we've turned to the godly, and we've done everything necessary to begin to make things right. say it again. You and I need to live in a way today so that we can thrive tomorrow. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, we thank you for the story of a father and a son. The story of regret and grief. The story of death and rebellion all the things that all of us deal with in our world today. God, a story from so long ago can come alive and be so real today. God, you speak through a story like that to remind us of who you are. God, we can trust you because you are here. You are loving. You are merciful. You are graceful. You are all those things, and you will not forsake us. 
So God, my simple prayer is that you give every single one of us the strength to repent, to turn from a life of regret or being stuck in grief. In fact, I want to stop. I want to pause for one second. And I want to ask this question. If that's where you're at, you're stuck in grief. Regret is defining your life. And you need that strength. I want you to simply raise your hand this morning. You can keep your eyes closed. Nobody's looking at you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for all of you. God, that's it. Strength. Strength to no longer live in worldly sorrow, but now live in godly sorrow with you, surrendered, trusting that you give us life if you give it in abundance. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray this all in your son's name.